if you've been with us as a church, we've, uh, we've been in this series called Fast Forward. We had our last week of that last week with kind of testimonies and reflecting on that. And then uh, today we're starting a new series called Alive. For the next six weeks with Easter in mind, we're gonna be talking about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and the implications for that. So it's gonna be big time. It's gonna be awesome. So uh, this morning, we're gonna look at the cross that Jesus uh, died on for us. We're gonna look at some of the moments that led up to the cross, and I think it's gonna be special. Um, the thing that was sticking out to me this week was, one, uh, you know, it's the cross, so try not to mess that up because it's like the most important thing ever in the world's history. Um, so I'm nervous a little bit, please be gracious. And then two, uh, what really stuck out to me was as I've grown up in the church, that was, that's my background, so I don't know where you come from, maybe some of you, that's not your story, but for me, I grew up in the church. And so the, the concept, the idea that Jesus is the son of God, who's fully God, fully man, died on a cross, resurrected for the, for the sake of the world, uh, makes a lot of sense. It, it's normal to me. It's, it's big picture, macro level stuff, you know, like, oh, God became man, saved the world. It's awesome. But in the past few months, I've, I've experienced um, something unique and special as I've been reading through the gospels. I I chose to kind of slow my pace down, and instead of reading quickly through familiar texts about Jesus dying on the cross, you know, the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, all those things, I've, I chose to go a lot slower this last time around. And instead, I would read like four or five verses at a time, and I would close my eyes, and I would play that scene out in my head. I'd try to picture, man, Jesus, okay, the Last Supper, okay, you're in a room, you're with your disciples, what did that look like? What did it feel like? What was on your mind? And I just... I started slowing down and paying more attention verse by verse to what might have been happening as the story unfolded. And I experienced something pretty powerful. I felt like God opened my eyes to things that are true and easy to miss. And so I'm gonna try to take what for me was a few weeks of experience and just mush it into like one teaching, okay? So hopefully it doesn't feel like I've been mushing a lot. Hopefully you can follow it. I don't know if mushing is the right word. It's a weird word to use right now. But anyway, so when I think about this teaching, one thing that stands out to me is Jesus saying yes. And he says yes a lot, I think. Um, and it's not necessarily in the verse, oh, Jesus said yes a lot. But as we read through Mark 14 together today, I, I really think you're gonna see Jesus over and over again saying yes. And as I was walking around the parking lot after the 9 a.m., I think God gave me a story, so I wanna share it. You know, there's this uh, illusion about rock climbing, or not rock climbing, never done that, cliff jumping, okay? Cliff jumping, the, uh, the exact opposite of rock climbing, okay? Uh, you're jumping off of them, all right? Has anyone been cliff jumping, jumped off a rock? Good, good job, everybody. Way to get out in nature, wow, impressive. Uh, anyway, so there's an illusion about cliff jumping, right? Here's what I think the illusion is. The illusion is you say yes to cliff jumping once, Okay, say yes once. When's that yes happening? When you are floundering through the air, just thinking, wow, I was farther up than I realized at this point, right? And you're waiting to hit the water, right? But the truth is, if you're like me and you're scared to death of that jump, but wanna prove yourself, you say yes a thousand times, right? When everyone's going, hey, we're going cliff jumping this weekend, wanna go? Yes, that's once, right? We get to the trail, we're going past this, in the woods, headed to the cliff, I'm saying yes again. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna jump. No, 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 I'm gonna jump, I'm gonna get to the edge of the cliff, I'm not gonna be scared, I'm gonna jump, right? Okay, a little further, you see the first person jump, and you're like, he was in the air for like nine seconds. What? 
golly, they said it was 30 feet, more like 300, I'm gonna die, you know? You say yes again, and then everyone's looking at you, and you're like, oh, I'm jumping, I ain't even, I'm just giving y'all time to prepare yourselves, because I'm just gonna just stand here for a second and try to say yes again, right? And then there's a yes where you jump. And the story we're covering today, I feel like it's easy to underestimate how many times Jesus said yes over and over and over again to dying for us, like to giving his life so that we could have life. For me, I've always seen it on the micro level, or nope, on the macro level, the big picture. Oh yeah, Jesus came from heaven, died for the people, right? That's what happened. That's one big ginormous yes. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. But as I was reading through this slowly, I'm like, oh my gosh, he had so many chances to press the eject button. Like he had so many moments. And as I read, I see like the human in Jesus. And I'm like, I see some of his impulses to say, take this cup from me. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But like so many moments where I'm like, hey, if you were ever gonna leave, that was your shot. And I think now I'm starting to understand that was a legitimate chance for you to step away. You could have actually made that choice. You actually had the choice and you kept saying yes. And just like cliff jumping for me, a much more shallow and you know, less weighty responsibility to jump off a rock into water. Just like cliff jumping, like it's full of these little moments and the closer you get to the edge of the cliff, the bigger that yes seems to become. I believe as I've watched the story of Jesus unfold, I realized like every time you said yes, you were meaning it more and more and more and you just had more bravery and more love and more compassion and it's really powerful. So we're gonna jump into Mark 14 and I wanna give us some context. Um, I feel like I'm gonna talk for like 30 minutes before even reading something. I'll try not to do that. But we're gonna be in Mark 14, and obviously we've been in Nehemiah for like six to eight weeks, and so uh, this, is, this is new. We're hopping right into a story. So just to give us some context, we're in Mark 14. Jesus has been doing ministry for something like three years. He's been teaching the scriptures with authority. Some weird stuff's been happening around Jesus. Dead people just don't seem to stay dead around Jesus. They resurrect. People with evil spirits in them are, are freed instantly at the word of Jesus, People with illness and sickness are healed. It's like this surreal thing. And, and Jesus, like any great leader, is divisive, right? If there's a great leader, often there's gonna be two different sides. And a lot of people, especially sinners, I'll take note of that, uh, are following Jesus. They're in on what he's saying, proclaiming about the kingdom of God coming near to earth. But there's also some leaders, some religious leaders, who aren't comfortable with how powerful Jesus seems to be and the attraction that he is gaining. And so they plot against him. They plot to kill him. And we are coming in to the last moments of Jesus' life before he's going to be arrested, um, wrongly accused of crimes, and murdered. Okay, that's going to happen. And the thing is, for Jesus, that's not really a surprise. He has actually been talking about it for a while. It's a weird thing he does. He, like, will just be chatting with his disciples and then just decide to remind them, hey, by the way, I'm going to get murdered. And uh, three days later, don't freak out. I'm going to come back and then uh, we're gonna hang out, right? It's like, Jesus is just, he's been talking about this for a while. And so we're gonna get in on the last few moments of his life. And this is like uncomfortably um, not structured, but I want us to just like experience the story a little bit. So be gracious with me as I lack clear points and rhymes and same letters and all those things that help you remember stuff. You're hopeless for that today. Okay, so we're gonna look at the Passover, the Last Supper, that, that, that moment, the garden and the cross. So the first thing we're gonna read is verses 22 through 26. And we're immediately gonna join the disciples in Jesus in this upper room. And they're gonna be eating a meal, okay? It's Passover month, the month of Nisan. You might remember that from the book of Nehemiah, month of Nisan, shout out Nehemiah. They're in Jerusalem, shout out Nehemiah, right? He rebuilt Jerusalem, everybody remember? Built a team, built a city, 
Shout out Nehemiah. Jesus has a city to, to live in that has walls because of that. So just wanted to connect some dots. Hope you enjoyed that segue. All right. <laughs> that went well. So anyway, they're in this upper room and you might be wondering, what's an upper room? It is exactly what it sounds like. It is a room and it's like upper. It's upstairs, right? I was in Jerusalem and actually got to see an upper room and it is as upper and just a room as you would think it would be. It is the most simple thing ever, all right? So they're in this upper room and they're getting a meal. So they're gonna eat a Passover meal. Now this was big for Jewish people, okay? Let me give you a little context. Like I said, I'm gonna talk for a while, then we're gonna read. Little context to what a Passover meal was, all right? It was this beautiful time of remembering the story of Exodus, all right? And if you're unfamiliar with that, it's the story of God's people, the Israelites, being enslaved in Egypt for like 400 years, God hearing their cries and delivering them. So the Israelites once a year, the Jews once a year, would have a meal to remember a month, a Passover month, and then they would eat this Passover meal, and it was full of symbolism and imagery, okay? It's way more full than what I'm going to talk about today. So if you know a lot about the meal and you're like, man, you really only talked about just a little bit, my bad, I'm not about to give a lecture on the Passover meal today. But there's a couple of things that are really beautiful about this meal, all right? And I want to tell you about two of them. First, they would eat unleavened bread together, all right? Who knows what leaven is? Yeah, yeah, well, okay, you were modest and humble. I appreciate that. I did not, all right? Look, all I know about, and I still don't know a lot, all I know about leaven is this what makes the rolls all fluffy, right? It makes it like rise, pretty, I'm pretty sure, right? Is that kind of right? It makes it soft and chewy, you know? I remember being at a restaurant called Lambert's. It was a place where they threw rolls to you. They were like the most buttery, fluffy rolls. They were awesome. Anyway, that's because of leaven. Shout out leaven, shout out Lambert's, okay? So leaven made the bread rise, well, they would eat unleavened bread at the Passover meal for an important reason. In Exodus 12, God actually instructed the Israelites, tomorrow or, or this night, you're going to escape Egypt. So eat a meal, but make sure the bread's unleavened and leave with haste, all right? They're in a hurry because they are literally going to escape Egypt. They're gonna flee Egypt once Moses frees them, right? And then the Egyptians are going to chase after them. So God says, hey, Make your meal, eat your bread, but make it unleavened bread. We don't got time to wait for it to rise, all right? So they ate unleavened bread, kind of like crackers, okay? That's a big deal. They knew that the bread symbolized the quickness to which they had to escape to freedom. Does that make sense? Okay, so secondly, I wanna talk about, they would drink these four cups of wine. And there were four cups because, what's well, a lot of wine probably, but anyway, four cups of wine, and they were symbolic of Exodus, let me make sure I don't misquote it, six, six through seven. There's four moments where God is going to speak a promise of deliverance, okay? I want you to hear these words. He tells the Israelites, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to me for a people. And so at Passover, you would take these four cups and remember that God keeps his promises. He made these four promises of deliverance and he came through, right? The Israelites we're freed. Okay, all of that context to inform this next part. Now we're going to read chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day uh, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, end scene. So Jesus says, take, this is my body. Jesus is so good at this. He does something very simple and it says a lot. He's always doing that really, really awesome stuff. So he says, take this bread 
And instead of remembering, this is what I'm, I see in it, right? Instead of remembering the quickness of the escape, right? The Israelites having to eat the unleavened bread to remember they had to make haste and flee Egypt to get to freedom. This bread is now representing Jesus's body where freedom came to them, right? Isn't that beautiful? It's like, hey, you took this remembering that you had to run to freedom so God could deliver you, but this bread, this is my body. Remember that God has become flesh and has come into your midst so you don't have to run to freedom. Freedom has showed up at your front doorstep. Isn't that beautiful? I I, I don't know what it's like to grow up Jewish, but I imagine in that moment when he said, hey, this bread, you know what this bread means. It's my body now. That's what it means. Like, Freedom has come your way. It's stepped to you. I think it's such a cool story of how God comes to us. And then he says, hey, take this cup. Remember it as my blood. Formerly, it's this moment where you remember the four promises of God to deliver the people. And then what is Jesus's blood? It's by his blood, his perfect blood that we are delivered into eternal life, fully living freely with our Father God in heaven. And Jesus says, remember, God keeps his promises. Like this is your deliverance. Isn't that so strong? That thing is so beautiful. So this is an amazing moment. But what stuck out to me also about this, so I've given you some facts about the Passover, the imagery Jesus is getting at, it's just gorgeous. But what hit me this week, and what hit me a few months ago as I was reading through this super slow, this whole time, Jesus is about to die. Can you imagine if you knew you were about to die? It really hit me. He's so calm right now. Like, what a, what a meaningful meal. He's talking about, like, hey, this is my body. This is my blood. Remember this. And you'll see in verses, like, 27 through 31, he's also saying stuff like, hey, you're all going to scatter, but when I'm raised up, I'll be back with you in Galilee. And Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he's, like, so peacefully and calmly getting them ready for what's to come. And he almost makes you forget he's the one that's about to be crucified. And I was like, Jesus, if I look at this like just the Bible story and and get the stuff out of it I'm supposed to, he's loving, he's great, it's cool. This is a real story. Jesus is really about to be abandoned. He's literally telling the disciples, you're going to leave me all alone. But yet he's calmly and peacefully preparing them. And I don't know if that resonates with you, but it just hit me. Jesus is so sweet. That is such a kind and loving God that in his darkest hour, his concern for his disciples is what trumps his, his maybe reason to panic or be fearful. He's like taking care of them. And I, I thought about this story that pales in comparison. It is not probably even worth me sharing, but it kind of connected dots for me, so hopefully it helps you. I remember this one time I was in Atlanta. I was at this building called the Georgia Dome. Does anyone know what the Georgia Dome is? Shout out, come on. So I was there for a basketball tournament. It's huge, all right? It's the SEC basketball tournament. This is going somewhere. There's like 50,000 people there, okay? Watching the game, Mississippi State's playing somebody, and all of a sudden, we hear thunder outside. That's normal. Storms happen, right? But then something abnormal happens. I look up, and the scaffolding up there, the thing that you've never seen move before, is shaking back and forth. I was like, huh. Looked at my dad. I'm like, 12. Dad? that legit, that cool. And dad's like, dad's like, it's designed to do that. I'm like, dope. He's my dad. I believe him. I'm like, cool. sounds good. I look, oh, it's a true story. I look over and way over there at the other side of the arena, there is a hole that is blown open in the side of the building. 
we still good over here? That's, this is still part of the, the, the building's infrastructure. This is still what you think should be happening. He's like, that's fine, that's fine. He's looking concerned. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, this is not cool. Watching the game, all the players, the referees, the teams run off the court. If you've, if you've ever been to games, just imagine the teams doing something they are not supposed to do. They just leave the game. And it's like, I look back at my dad. We still good here? Like, this is still the way it's supposed to go? Like, whatever. He's saying, cool, everyone obviously starts leaving. We hear nuts and bolts. They're falling. They're hitting people on the head, like, straight up. Like, yeah, yeah, this is real, all right? The building is falling apart. It's not good. I'm like, oh, my goodness. People are trying to get to the exit, you know, not to go outside, but I guess to, like, hide in the restroom or something. And the whole time, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. This goes on for about 30 minutes or maybe less. It sounds like a helicopter has landed on the building. It's so loud, super scary stuff. Find out two tornadoes had hit Atlanta in like the past, I think, hour. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And so after a while, everyone composes themselves. The building doesn't fall. Shout out. That was great news. They did a good enough job building it. Maybe not perfect. And uh, I remember talking to my dad after, and I was like, wow, did you know that the building wasn't supposed to do that? And he was like, yes. <laughs> like, that was not good. <laughs> like, I was pretty worried. Like, when that stuff started shaking and bolts started, I was like, this is probably not going too well, right? But what happened in that moment? My dad knew. Like, he had every reason to be scared for his own life. I mean, people are scrambling. This is pretty surreal. But he knew he wanted me to feel good. He wanted me to be calm in the midst of calamity, right? He wanted me to feel this sense of peace, even though there was a lot of things not to feel peace about, right? That's a bad example for what Jesus is doing. Because what Jesus is doing is so much more beautiful. In the moment he's gonna feel the most isolated, the most abandoned, even from his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His love and concern for the good care of his disciples trumps his, his, uh, maybe his tendency to panic. And I was just blown away by that. Like if you accept it as a true story, a thing that really happened, I'm like, Jesus, you love them so much. That is so sweet. Like, that is so kind that in your darkest hour, your first concern was that your disciples were ready. They were ready to go. Here's what's about to happen. It's my body. This is my blood. You're all going to scatter. You're going to deny me three times. I'll be with you in Galilee. I'm coming back. Love this. Keeping it moving. They leave the dinner. They sing hymns. Then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus goes to pray. And this just blows me away what we see from Jesus here. They enter into the garden. I'm gonna read from verse 32, chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, check this, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you'll let the, this, the reality of this part of the story soak in, I think it's just mind-blowing what Jesus is going through here. Listen to how he describes himself in verse 34. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. The verse before that, he was greatly distressed and troubled. Another translation will say he's dist- distressed to the point of death. In all of scripture, there is no other place 
that stresses this amount of stress, okay? This is the apex of stress in all of scripture. And who does it happen to be about? Out of all the people, the savior of the world. The guy that, I don't know, for me, sometimes I get it disconnected. I just assume he's God. I know he's fully man, but he's also fully God. So like, how hard was it? You know what I'm saying? Like, really. But in this moment, he says, I'm distressed, sorrowful, even to the point of death. Have you ever felt stressed? Have you ever felt stressed to the point of death? Some of you are like, yes, I have kids. Absolutely, right? But truly, let yourself embrace this. Jesus, son of God, perfection, the guy that he just has it all on lockdown. He resurrects the dead for goodness sake. But in this moment, he's like, I'm distressed to the point of death. And I was just struck by that. Imagine Jesus on his knees shaking as he's praying like, God, this is hard. It just struck me. Jesus is like saying yes over and over and over again. You ever stressed about trying to do something? How many times do you want to say no? Like over and over again, you're like, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. And over and over again, Jesus just keeps praying. And then listen to his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Listen to this. Remove this cup from me. For anyone that doubted that this was a a, a hard experience for Jesus, he was not like, he didn't get to stand at a distance from this trial, from this difficulty. He goes to the Father and imagine Jesus praying this. Remove this cup. God, if there's any other way, let's go that way right? Isn't it interesting? Like, have you ever let yourself really accept that Jesus prayed that? God, if there's any way, who's he? He's the closest to the Father. Can we do something different? And how's he in his prayer? Not my will. Yours be done, right? And he goes back and he finds the disciples sleeping, right? He did such a good job casting vision and calming the disciples that they fell asleep, right? And so he's sleeping. They're like, hey, get up, watch, pray. Don't fall into temptation, And then he says something really interesting. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's like, hey, your bodies are tired, but the spirit's willing. If you want to stay up and pray. But I also think Jesus was almost like low key, like encouraging himself. Like the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. In that moment in the garden, take this cup from me. But saying, but your will be done. He was led by the spirit in the midst of feeling stressed to the point of death, blown away by this. And we keep moving. His betrayer comes, Judas, his follower, one of his 12, one of his closest friends, literally comes and betrays him, gives him up to be, to be killed. He's arrested. And from what, I, from what I can tell from chapters 14 through 15, as I keep reading, all I see is uh, disciples denying to know him, scattering about, leaving him alone, um, people spitting on him and hitting him, mocking him, and him very solemnly and quietly answering the questions asked of him. Are you the son of God? I am. Just humbly and quietly. And for me, the picture... The calmness of the, supper, the Last Supper, the calmness there before such a hard moment, the stress of that prayer, and then like this resolute, like, I don't know, is peacefulness a word? Maybe. This resolute peacefulness following that moment. Can you imagine going from a place of shaking, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, to standing before your own creation as they spit on you and mock you and crucify you for something you didn't deserve as you do it for them so peacefully. I'm like, how, how, how does one man do that? What does it take for someone to do that? And to put it simply, it takes someone being absolutely in love with you. It takes someone so sold on humanity 
all of its goodness, all of its brokenness, all of its shame, all of its sin, its high notes, its low notes, the good and the bad, all encompassing for all of time. It takes someone radically in love to say yes to that. And it hit me this week. It's been hitting me for a few months. Jesus, you didn't just say yes in heaven and then come down here and you were just like free of struggle and you just died on the cross. You did what you did. That's how it works in Christianity. Good job. That's the story. You said yes like a thousand times. Just like when I got in the car to go cliff jumping, I was like, okay, yes. And I got to the cliff and was like, yes, right? It's like, just like that, except probably with a little more strength and, uh, and just he was better at doing it. But just like that, the closer the moment got, the closer the pain got, the closer the separation got, the, closest, the closer he got to being totally abandoned and left alone, he kept saying yes. And the reason he said yes, please hear me, is because he loves you. I don't know about you, but I'm a works guy. I like to earn stuff. I don't care what it is. If I'm getting something good, I like to know that because of what I did, I got it. So this is hard for me to wrestle with. I'm not a big fan for some reason of the whole, God just loves you. You're just so good. You're just awesome. He just loves you. He's proud of you. And I'm like, okay, chill. All right. Unless I've been really obedient that week, I'm just slow to say yes to that. Right. So I'm slow to like want to preach that. But as I'm reading this, like slowly, I'm like only someone who is crazy about you who is so, so sure of loving you so much, every part of his heart, not, not room for 1% of doubt for how much he loves you. Only someone that sold out on love can go through something like this and keep saying yes. And so we're going to end this conversation with the simplest, almost uncomfortably simple, Jesus loves you. He is so sure about you. Never doubted it. He fought for it. He fought for you. Like, he is so sure of you that he gave his life for you. And the truth is, we needed that. We needed that so bad. God, in all of his perfection, humans in all of their darkness and brokenness and sin, separated, no shot at undoing what had been broken. And God himself takes on flesh, steps onto earth, lives amongst brokenness in all perfection, lets creation crucify him to a tree so that you could know, one, I love you, and two, there is a way back to God. What a good God. He loves you. If you've had a week like me, it is not the morning to accept this. It's just not. I'm I'm tired. I'm sinful. I'm skeptical. I'm cynical. I'm like, stop telling me how much you love me. I want to hear that. Tell me you're like mad or something. Like get on to me, like discipline me or something. And I'm sure as a good father does, he has some good things for me to discipline me on. But I'm overwhelmed by this. No matter where you're at in your walk of life, how you're feeling this morning, there is one thing I am 100% confident that you can be 100% confident about. God loves you straight up. And so we're going to take communion as a church together. And we're gonna take communion with this kind of Passover meal in, in, in light of that. This is the bread, the unleavened bread. It used to mean that we had to run to our freedom out of slavery from Egypt. But now it means freedom has come and found you. You couldn't have found it, it found you. We used to take this cup remembering those four moments of deliverance in the book of Exodus. Now we remember that once and for all, you have been delivered. If God promises deliverance, he keeps his promise Let the cup remind you of the perfect blood Jesus shed to give you that deliverance now and forever. So if you're here today and you don't know God, 
I'm just gonna keep it super simple. If you sense the Holy Spirit of God calling you into deeper relationship, calling you to know him for the first time, if you want someone to pray with, we're gonna have some people at the respond banner. I'll be back there. You'll see some red badges. They'll be back there. We would love to pray for you. We'll have guys and girls. If you wanna pray here at your seat, that's fine. If you wanna talk, though, we're back there. And for those that are Christians, that need to be reminded of the thing that we're just supposed to know because we're Christians. Hopefully this morning, I pray, was a rich reminder there is nothing you can do to undo how hard Jesus loves you. Like, he loves you so much. He fought for that, and you can't undo it. You cannot. So let's celebrate communion as a reminder that he made a way when we never could have, and we can't undo the way he made. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll, I'll talk us through how we're going to go to communion, and uh, then we'll just worship. So God, thank you for this morning. Um, love you. I pray, God, for anyone sensing you calling them to relationship with you, help them to be courageous and just take steps to pray to you. Um, you tell us, believe in our heart, confess with our mouth that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, you call us just to follow you one step at a time. You don't call us to perfection. You just call us to follow. God, if you're calling anyone, um, lead them by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, I pray for anyone that needed to know today, um, there is nothing you can do. I just, it's just the story of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to outrun his love. Um, help out to wash over us, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.